there. Welcome to New Books in History. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had the pleasure of talking with Catherine Higgs about her new book, Chocolate Islands, Cocoa, Slavery, and Colonial Africa. And that came out with Ohio University Press in 2012. Now, we had the good fortune of being able to talk in person today at the National Humanities Center, um, which was quite wonderful. And in the course of our conversation, we talked about a lot of the really wonderful features of this book. It's, it's a book that manages to, at the same time, be an account that is written for and extraordinarily readable by a broad general audience, while at the same time being really, really satisfying for a professional academic historian, being based on really impressive archival research into the topics that Higgs is talking about. Now, this is a book that is, at the same time, an account of the changing and perhaps conflicting meanings of labor in the context of early 20th century colonialism, specifically focusing on the cases of British and Portuguese colonialism in Africa. It's also an account of the ways that sort of slavery, and again, the different conceptions and changing conceptions of what that entailed, was a kind of touchstone issue over um, colonial engagements with issues of labor. It's also an account of the history of the production of a really fascinating commodity that is chocolate. And it's a really wonderful travel account full of stories from the letters and the um, sort of experiences of several uh, characters, but mostly a main character named Bert, uh, Joseph Bert. It's a really wonderful read. It's a fascinating book. It's very, very assignable um, in classrooms as well. And I learned a lot from it. It was a great experience talking with Catherine, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Catherine. Hello, Carla. We're here today to talk with Catherine Higgs about her new book, Chocolate Islands, Cocoa, Slavery, and Colonial Africa. Welcome to New Books in History, Catherine, and thanks so much for making the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Carla. I appreciate the opportunity. Catherine, could you get us started by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you to the field of African history in the first place? Uh, the field of African history intrigued me when I was uh, an undergraduate at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. I was at university in the early 1980s, and what dominated television screens in the early 1980s was South Africa. And I was fascinated by this place and uh, studied uh, South African history at Queen's, and then had the opportunity to study South African history more deeply at Yale University. Great. So what about this topic in particular? The book that we'll talk about today, um, and we'll sort of get to a more detailed description of this, looks at um, 20th century chocolate or cocoa production in Africa. What brought you to this topic in particular, and how does it, um, if you would talk a little bit about the the place of this and the trajectory of your work, how does this fit with the rest of your your research up to now? To a certain extent, it's a bit of an outlier. This book is about Portuguese West Africa. And it does have a little bit about South Africa in it. South Africa is connected. Uh, In the late 1980s, I was in the British Library newspaper reading room, and I was looking for articles about the subject of my dissertation. And what caught my eye uh, in these old newspapers 
was an accusation against the Cadbury Brothers Chocolate Company that they were using slave-produced cocoa from Santo Domingo Principe. So this is, what, 1988, quite a few years ago, and it just stuck in my mind. The story stuck, and I thought to myself, one of these days I must investigate that. Uh, and it was, of course, many, many years later before I got around to it, and I discovered along the way that to do it properly, I needed to learn how to read Portuguese. So there was a little ramp-up time <laughs> to get going. So the, the story just stuck in my head. It was a kind of tangential newspaper story. Now, this the way you decided to write the book, um, the audience you decided to write the book for, is very striking. It's an extraordinarily readable book, and you mention it, the, um, I think, in the preface or mm -hmm. in the prologue or something like the that. The preface. The preface. That you chose to write this book for an audience of general readers. Right. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that decision? Why did you choose to write this particular book that way? Well, this is the, the kind of choices that I think face many academics. Um, the book, as you know, is based on extensive academic research, including in Portuguese contemporary and secondary sources uh, and primary sources. However, uh, just as I began to start the book in earnest, two books on the same subject came out. Uh, one by Lowell Satre, Chocolate on Trial, uh, and then a study, a theoretical study of new imperialisms by Kevin Grant, which included a quite extensive chapter on this very issue. And I thought to myself, oh darn, <laughs> how am I going to do this? And it took a while to realize that I had collected among the various materials a set of papers that had not been seen in about 50 years. And that was the set of letters that Birch wrote to Cadbury while he was in Africa. And once I realized that, I thought, okay, well, let's put those letters at the center of this story and make it a narrative. And after consulting with a good friend who has written many narrative histories and helped me think about this, I decided, okay, that's the way to go. Make this a story of interest to a broad audience, keeping in mind that it is an issue that will interest students, that was part of my target audience, and scholars will be interested in this new set of letters. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Bert, um, who was the writer of these letters. So before right. we get to um, talking about this collection of letters, which is really interesting, the, the story of the book is going to hinge on the relationship, among many other things, between this figure, Joseph Bert, and William Cadbury. Right. So let's start off for listeners by meeting them. Yes. Uh, so can you say a little bit about Joseph Burt? Who was he, and can you introduce him for listeners? Figuring out who Joseph Burt was is a little problematic because of all the various figures in this book, he left no papers. It was impossible to find anything about him, and certainly the man who wrote Chocolate on Trial would have found anything. It was an exhaustive attempt by Lowell Sartre to find materials. So Joseph Burt is, to a certain extent, a mystery. Um, what we do know is that he was a member of the Society of Friends, the Quakers. We do know that he's, his birth family was probably decently wealthy, uh, but beyond that, not much. 
we do know that he joined a kind of uh, communalist colony in the late 1800s. Uh, called White Way Colony. He had been working in a bank for 20 years and decided, well, this is no good. I must try something else. He, he had, I think, you and I would say he had a midlife crisis. Um, William Cadbury was um, one of the directors, although actually not at this point, in the late 1800s. He was a young-ish man working for the family firm. The family firm had started out in coffee and tea and then migrated in the 1860s into chocolate production. He was also a member of the Society of Friends, also a Quaker. The broader Cadbury family was very interested in social issues, so they were uh, involved in the movement to abolish slavery. Um, they, were move, they were involved in indigenous rights campaigns for indigenous peoples around the world. So these two men had similar interests. They kind of existed in the same orbit of connections in the late 1800s, but it was this accusation that the Cadbury Brothers Chocolate Company might be using slave-produced cocoa that brought them together. Great. Now, now that we know a little bit about Bert, um, you, we know a whole lot about Bert from the book. And this is interesting because yes. you mentioned that um, he was relatively unknown um, to you before this. Now, you mentioned earlier this collection of letters that emerged that, right. um, that was so important for this story. So can you talk a little bit about these letters? Um, what was your process of finding them like and how did they shape the way you thought about the book? I found them courtesy of James Duffy's widow. James Duffy was one of the prominent scholars of Portuguese West African history in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And on his death, his wife gave a big box of materials to the African collection at Yale University. Um, I happened to be in the area. The very kind curator of the African collection at Yale gave me access to this big box of papers. To be perfectly frank, it took me quite a few years to realize that in that big box was this set of letters and that these letters were distinctive. Uh, the Cadbury Company had given its records uh, pertaining to West Africa and its West African operations to the Birmingham University Library in 1972. So 40 years ago, uh, a deep commitment to transparency on the part of the Cadbury Collection. And as I went through um, the box of papers that Duffy's widow had donated to Yale, it seemed at first glance, that virtually everything was a duplicate of what existed in Birmingham in England. So it was quite a while before I realized I really did have something distinctive. Now, fortuitously for me, it turns out that James Duffy, in one of his books, uh, a book called A Question of Slavery, actually refers directly to this set of letters. Mm -hmm. So somewhere along the way, somewhere in that process of transfer from Cadbury Brothers Limited in Birmingham to the Birmingham Library, this set of letters got lost. And I realized that the set of letters probably got lost because it seemed to the archivist at Cadbury uh, Brothers Limited that they duplicated the court records in, involved in a, a suit where Cadbury had sued a newspaper in 1908. So. 
I think the the archivist uh, at Cadbury Brothers thought there was duplication, and he just ignored this copy of letters. So it was Duffy's widow giving the collection to Yale of her husband's research materials that uh, made this set of letters reappear. And the the curator at the African collection at Yale University ultimately donated a copy to Birmingham Library, so they now exist again. But, I mean, it was years, literally, before I realized, oh, I have something unique here. I should do something with this. <laughs> so. so this is, the the book is about a lot of things, okay? A lot of things at the same time. So even though the title is Chocolate Islands and readers may think, oh, this is a history of chocolate, it's not just a history no. of chocolate. Um, you're talking here about the history of early 20th century colonialism, especially as it involves the relationship and engagement between Britain and Portugal. Um, you're talking about an account of um, not just slavery in Africa, but definitions of slavery, sort of conceptions, emerging conceptions of what labor means and what work means, and we'll talk about that. It's also a kind of travel account. Yes, um, it is. <laughs> so the book is it's not only wonderfully readable, but it's many different things at the same time. So this, this story starts, and we actually come to Bert and Cadbury meeting each other by the emergence of this question, this set of issues around cocoa production in Saint-Tomé. Um, so in 1901, Cadbury, you bring us into the first chapter by, with this vignette in which Cadbury is sitting down with a catalog and an offer to purchase a cocoa estate in Saint-Tomé. So how did he become concerned? With, as he's mulling over this offer and this issue comes up, how does Cadbury start worrying about the issue of labor conditions and slavery um, in this region? So how does this emerge for him um, as a question? Why does he start worrying about this in the first place? He's reading the, the cocoa catalog, so the offer of sale, and he sees that cocoa workers are listed as items for sale mm -hmm. in the catalog. So this is disturbing, to say the least, especially for a family that had been involved in the, the movement to abolish slavery. And he has a kind of chatter in his ear from Trinidad and the West Indies saying, oh, yes, absolutely, they are using workers who are forced to labor. The Portuguese come into the story because the Portuguese interpretation of what those Trinidadian planters are doing is that those planters in the West Indies are trying to undercut cocoa from Saint-Tomé. And the problem from Cadbury's perspective is the quality of cocoa, so the grade of cocoa from Saint-Tomé is superior, one of the best grades of cocoa there is. So he's sitting there in 1901 thinking to himself, darn, what am I going to do here? I have to figure out what's going on. So it's actually the catalog listing workers and pieces of machinery as part of the goods of the estate. And for Cadbury, the, the issue is those workers have to have the freedom to leave the estate, and he needs to find out what's going on. Now, these issues for readers or for listeners even who haven't had a chance yet to read the book sound very familiar to yes. somebody concerned about um, how much did contemporary issues about, contemporary meaning sort of in the time that we live in, right now, 
right now. In the 21st, in the 21st century, century, as opposed to the early 20th right, exactly. century. How much did contemporary issues about working conditions and the production of commodities shape your interest in telling this particular story? Or, or did you have that in the back of your mind while you were telling this story about concern about labor conditions and the production of goods in the early 20th century? I suspect for a modern reader in the early 21st century, it would be impossible not to think about these issues. Uh, it's certainly the case that many large multinational companies have had to confront these issues absolutely directly. So uh, if you look at Nestle, the Swiss company, if you look at Cadbury, they have made, or they did make, um, Cadbury has recently been sold, but they did make very strong efforts to essentially improve workers' rights and even, in the Cadbury case, to buy cocoa from independent African producers, although that doesn't necessarily guard one from accusations of the use of slave labor. At least it puts it at one remove. So absolutely, those issues do affect the interpretation and the reading of materials from 100 years ago. It seems like a very familiar story. And what you discover in an age, uh, a non-internet age, where there isn't instant information and where things kind of gradually come out, is that it, it just seems remarkably similar. Mm -hmm. uh, companies are concerned about reputation. Companies are concerned about how consumers are receiving their goods. And ultimately, companies are concerned about how their workers are being treated. And they are worried about scandal. Now, one of the things at issue here, um, that's uh, as we get into what happens next, and you know, mm -hmm. Cadbury decides, or as my reading of the narrative as a reader um, tells me, Cadbury decides from this that um, he doesn't want to accuse the Portuguese of engaging slave labor if that's not really what's going on. So he's going to find a way to send somebody um, to examine on the ground. But before we get to um, sort of how he finds Bert and what and how Bert gets sent, one of the really interesting things at stake here is how the different parties involved in this potential dispute. So Cadbury, um, other cocoa producers, Portuguese cocoa producers, how they're all defining slavery and mm -hmm. how they're defining what counts as work. Right. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that set of issues? And I know that's a, a huge question, but whatever part of that question you want to engage with. I think this probably is uh, a key dividing issue. So the Cadbury company had invested a great deal. So we're, we're talking in the early 20th century, the Cadbury company had invested a, a great deal of effort and thought into ensuring that its own workers had a voice in the way the company operated. Uh, it had, it introduced things which would become common over the course of the 20th century, so a minimum wage, sick leave, educational programs, etc., etc., etc. So they were the good guys. Um, they really were innovators in labor relations and conditions of work in Britain. Uh, Portugal was a, a very different place, a predominantly rural society with a great deal of poverty and some considerable oppression 
of white workers. And there was a, a fundamental, I, I would suggest, a fundamental disconnect about what the nature of work was supposed to be. So from the British perspective, there should be a certain dignity to the act of labor, regardless of where one sat in the hierarchy. From the Portuguese perspective, dignity of labor was less significant than the conditions of labor. So what the Portuguese wanted uh, was a sense that laborers were well-fed. They were less concerned with happiness, per se, although some of the criticisms of the British view from the Portuguese perspective were there are laborers in Africa who are happier than our own peasant laborers. Mm -hmm. Why would the Portuguese make this claim in response to Portuguese, to British criticism of Portuguese uh, approaches to labor? They would make it because they would look at laborers in various Portuguese colonies in Africa, including Santo Domingo and Principe, and they would say, look, those Portuguese, those African laborers on the Portuguese islands of Santo Domingo and Principe, are well-fed, they work a reasonable number of hours, roughly eight and a half hours per day, uh, they are, their contracts are secured to ensure payment, they have hospitals, they really are living a sort of ideal life of precisely the sort the British claim they are not. And we can, when we compare the lot of those African laborers in Santo Domingo and Principe to, to Portuguese peasant laborers in Portugal, we've got uh, men and women working 18 hours a day without easy access to hospitals, without assurance of good food and a contractual wage, which is an interesting criticism of Portuguese society that isn't really addressed by the commentators defending their policies in Africa. So it is a marked division between what labor is supposed to be about. So the British, and especially the Cadburys, because the Cadburys are critical of industrial labor in England and Britain more widely and in the empire. For the Cadburys, it's about dignity and it's about mobility. You need to treat your workers well, and those workers need to have the opportunity to leave their jobs. For the Portuguese, it's, hey, is the job good and are you well cared for? If the job is good and you're well cared for, you really shouldn't be arguing. Mobility is not the issue. And if I may pander on for a little longer. <laughs> um, the interesting thing here is also that the Portuguese considered the British naive about how one acquired labor in a colonial context, because uh, the British and, to a certain extent, the Portuguese, absolutely, uh, were supportive of the abolition of slave trading and slavery in an African context. So absolutely, they wanted to get rid of slavery uh, on a public level, on a policy level, on an international level. However, the reality for... Uh, traders and businessmen and commercial enterprises investing in Africa in the late 19th and early 20th century was you have to get the labor from somewhere. 
where do we get our laborers? To a certain extent, in almost every case that European enterprises were investing in Africa in the late 19th and early 20th century, there was a degree of coercion involved in getting Africans to labor. So we don't call it slavery anymore, but we say these, these Africans are unemployed. They are essentially vagrants. So they pay a vagrancy tax, which forces them to work. And so there's this very elusive definition of what forced labor means and what slavery means by extension. So from the British perspective, if the worker cannot leave the job freely, I quit. You're a slave. From the Portuguese perspective, this is a more ambiguous question. If the conditions of labor are good, why would you want to quit? So... Great. So Cadbury, um, concerned with these issues, finds Joseph Burt and sends him as his representative to check out conditions on the cocoa planta plantations. And this is then where we get into the part of the story, which is um, a lot of the book that is not and not simply an account of Burt's travels, but it the, the account of Burt's travels as he's investigating these conditions on behalf of Cadbury forms the backbone of the narrative and the kinds of issues that we're going to um, talk about in the meantime. So Burt goes to Saint Tome in part to investigate the conditions of uh, people, and I'm going to pronounce this word, and I should say to listeners, Catherine told me how to pronounce this word before. <laughs> So I take no credit for knowing this, and I'm going to butcher it anyway, but Servisaish? Servisaish. Servisaish. So, okay, I speak Portuguese with a very marked English accent, <laughs> okay. so I, I wouldn't worry about the pronunciation the, uh, so much. New Jersey accent. Um, Servisaish. So he investigates the conditions. Servisaish. Um, so this, this is a term, and I'll mention this because... Terminology is really important here and in, in this story, and you've already talked about, um, it's not just a semantic issue. It's not just an mm. issue of how we're going to think about these terms, but the very meaning of the concept of labor, of right. slavery. This is very much at the crux of the issues that the book explores. And so it's not necessarily a simple thing to just say in the book, servants, yeah. as a you know simple translation of servisage. Um, so, okay, so I just want to lay that out there. Is that, um, that's one of the things that's really interesting in the book, actually, is that it's very sensitive to the plurality of ways of interpreting these concepts. So Bird goes to San Tomé to investigate the conditions of these servicesh, or perhaps we translate this as servants, perhaps not, retained by the Portuguese on the islands. Were they paid and voluntarily recruited, did, or did their inability to leave the islands define them as slaves? And this brings up the mobility issue. Mm -hmm. Okay, so can you talk a little bit about this part of the story? What's Bert's experience on San Tomé like, and what kinds of labor conditions does he find there? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, a good question. That's all the questions have been. You've provided narrative for my narrative. I appreciate it. <laughs> Um, as I think of the book and as I thought of, of the book and I and friends and colleagues read it for me and advised me on how to improve the narrative line when he lands on Saint-Omé he is naive uh, he is an idealist uh, he's had his little sojourn at Whiteway Colony where he has learned that growing your own food is incredibly hard work. 
and so he has retreated from the act of growing his own food. So he's still an idealist. Commentators at the time focus on his naivete, on his idealism. He is in his early 40s when he gets to Saint Tome, and he seems in many ways almost boyish in his attitude. So he's standing there the first couple of days, and he looks at African workers unloading a cocoa drying machine, and he thinks, oh man, it's so beautiful here. Uh, it's the islands sit in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and they really are beautiful. I mean, they're gorgeous. You feel like you're in the Garden of Eden. So the, the forest is lush and, you know, the fruit falls to the ground and you look out on the Atlantic Ocean and it's teeming with fish. It's a gorgeous place. So he's standing there and he's thinking, wow, this is almost idyllic. So that's day one and two. And he hasn't actually learned anything yet. So as he, and he spends ultimately six months there. And over the course of that six months, he comes to a more sophisticated understanding of what's going on, to the specific issue of servisaish or servants. That is a very charged issue. Servant sounds pretty, um, that the, the word is escaping me, but it, it doesn't sound malignant. It sounds benign as a concept, servant. The term that I mostly use when I use an English term is contract worker, which is much more descriptive. Buried in the notes, um, because we are all academics and we have to have expository notes occasionally, buried in the expository notes is a reference to John Wiley's translation of Boa Entrada plantation, which was the model plantation in Santo Domingo Principe. And in that... Uh, translation, he uses the term servant to refer to both white workers and black workers. The the term used in the Portuguese original for white workers is empregado, which is employee, and servisage for black workers, which is servant. And in both uh, cases, it means something very distinct. Now, the use of empregado is a class statement, so it's someone who is a worker, but you, you did not call in the Portuguese original black workers empregados, employees. You called them servisais, servants. And in the long changing of names to describe contract laborers in an African context, we start out with slaves, we move to freemen, and then we get... To servants. So you're quite right to point this out. Thank you. Uh, the weight of this word and the meaning of this word is quite heavy. And part of what Bert is doing on Saint Tome for six months, he takes a little side trip to Principe, mm -hmm. is trying to figure out what that word means. And his tour, to a certain extent, is packaged. They know he's coming, he's got connections from Lisbon. Everywhere he goes, they expect him. They try to show him, I would suggest, the best side of things. Probably among the most interesting encounters he has, again drawn from these sets of letters that he writes back to William Cadbury in Birmingham, is his encounters with black Santomean plantation owners which really kind of skews his thinking on what it is he's supposed to be seeing. So the great majority of plantation owners or estate owners, more accurately, estate Rosa estate owners in Santo Domingo and Principe are Portuguese. 
couple of Frenchmen in there, a Scotsman, and a few of these black Santomans. So these are black Africans who are the descendants of the slaves brought from the mainland of Africa to cut sugarcane in the 16th century. And over time, the islands Africanized after the Portuguese left for the first time and went and grew sugar in Brazil. So there's a process of re-Africanization with a kind of Portuguese overlay. So these are nominally and sometimes expressly Catholic people who speak a series of varieties of Portuguese uh, with a lot of African language folded in to these varieties of Portuguese. And they are the elites of the island. So he meets two of these men who own cocoa estates. And he is fascinated and intrigued, and because he's idealistic and naive, he thinks, ah, oh, this is the best side of Saint Tome. He writes to William Cadbury and he says, oh, you have to buy one of these estates. Now, William Cadbury does not want to buy one of the estates. There's this incredible delay in getting the letters, like months before you get the letters. And I, I, as I sat there thinking about what William Cadbury must have thought sometimes, opening these letters and reading them, I think to myself, he must have been tearing his hair out or what little hair he had, because <laughs> at this point he doesn't have much hair, wondering why his representative is not being more intrusive and more direct. Now, the irony there is he chose his representative in part because he was a nice guy mm -hmm. and he wasn't a pushy guy and he wasn't aggressive. And he hoped that Bert's sweetness, pun intended, would, would kind of get him the answer he was looking for. But on the Portuguese side, there's a very careful management of what Bert's doing, who he's going, who he's seeing, what information he's getting. And on Bert's part, and I can identify with this wholly, Bert learned to read Portuguese very well. I learned to read Portuguese very well. But he was never fluent and so there's this kind of moment of hesitation while you process what's being said to you. And where sometimes you're not entirely sure you're hearing what you think you're hearing. So in that sense, I identified with his experience of being told what he should be seeing, but wondering if he's fully understanding what he's hearing and interpreting it correctly. And that limited his ability to interrogate people. And this issue of language skill actually becomes a pivotal point in the larger, um, the larger set of discussions about these issues. Because mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, Bert, and you mentioned in the book, before he goes to Saint-Tomé and Principe, Principe. Um, he spends eight months in Porto studying Portuguese. Right. And so this is so you know one of the things that you talk about here is sort of the ways that maybe his um, lack of expertise in African languages is shifting the kind of story that he's getting. As oh, a result, I would say absolutely right? yes. This is a good point to bring up. And now, and even worse than that, one of the things that then comes up is that there's somebody else writing about them, Santome San and Principe in these areas as well at, at this time, right. right? And this is a journalist named um, Henry Nevinson. Now, Henry Nevinson, I, I bring him up here because one of the things that's notable in contrast to Harry, Henry Nevinson and um, Bert is that while Bert has Portuguese, Nevinson doesn't. Mm. Right? He doesn't have even Portuguese, let alone African languages. And this is one of the things that comes up when um, Nevinson's opinions are being critiqued. So who can you say a little bit about right. this figure? Who is he and sort of... Um, 
how is he important to this story? Because he emerges in this chapter as a really important character against which Bert and Cadbury are thinking about how to contextualize Bert's right. account. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. This He actually emerges uh, in the, the chapter about sleeping sickness, the chapter about Principe. Right. Although he also goes with Bert uh, to see Boa Entrada plantation. Nevison is, Henry Wood Nevison is probably the most famous journalist of his day, right? He's involved in everything. Um, he, for, for South Africanists, he reported on the siege of Mafeking and Ladysmith, for example, which happened during the, the South African War, 1899 to 1901. So he's a really famous guy. So he's basically action man, circa late 19th, early 20th century. He's at this point in his late 40s. He takes up a contract to work for Harper's Magazine, so the American magazine, and he chooses to go to Santome and Principe in West Africa because it's in the news. There are a series of scandals in the early 20th century, so the, the huge scandal that every Africanist and every student who takes modern African history learns about is the rubber scandal in the Congo. So the new name of the state is the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The name then was the Congo Free State, and it was kind of sort of a colony of Belgium. And there it was huge controversy that Africans were literally being forced to collect rubber. And if they didn't collect enough rubber, if they didn't meet their, cocoa, their, their quota, they would be tortured or killed. So it was a huge, huge, huge controversy. And it was evolving in the early 1900s. It had not reached its zenith, but it was evolving as a controversy. So this chocolate controversy intrigued Nevinson sufficiently that he thought, huh, maybe that's the next big thing to write about. That that was his attitude and that he was writing newspaper articles for which he was being paid, that he was going to write a book for which from which he would earn income, put Cadbury off completely. So Cadbury was very polite because Cadbury was pretty much very polite to everyone. And he said to Nevinson, well, here are a few names in Saint-Tomé, uh, but I've hired my own guy to go. So Nevinson was cynical and worldly and well-traveled, and Bert was not these things. Bert was this kind of boyish, I idealist, naive guy in his early 40s, and they clashed. Nevinson thought the guy was, what, a putz would be the word, right? <laughs> I mean, he really did not think that Bert had the ability to do this. Nevinson, so Nevinson was worldly and observant and thoughtful. He did speak French, um, and in that world at that time, French could get you a long way. That was still the case in the, in the early 21st century in Lisbon, that French could get you a long way, depending on the age of the Portuguese. So Nevinson... What Nevinson lacked in language skills, he made up in observation skills. However, I would suggest that you could say the same thing of both men, that as they gazed upon Africans, they were objectifying. They couldn't really connect. Language became a barrier to how much they could figure out what Africans were thinking about anything. 
Nevison was more sensitive, definitely more liberal in his views than Birch. Birch very definitely looked upon Africans as a thing separate from him. Nevinson went out of his way to stress the similarity, the humanity of Africans for his readers, so both in the 20th century. But I think the, the emotional and political and ideological inclinations of Nevison pushed him towards a more open view of Africans than Burt was capable of doing, but they were both very limited by their inability to speak African languages. And, it, and Bert even misses the opportunity to talk to people in Portuguese, right? Because there are plenty of Servisaish, at least at the higher levels, who speak Portuguese. And why isn't he asking them? So what's it like to be a Servisal? <laughs> Singular. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so this is this is actually um, you're raising an issue that's really interesting and really important, and so I want to um, continue talking about this issue for a moment. One of the things that happens in the course of the next chapters is that even though Bert and Nevinson are undertaking the same or similar journey in reverse order, they're ultimately going to, at the end of the day, come to very similar conclusions. Right. But one of the things that happens um, is that Bert's, as you're mentioning, his observations and the way he's perceiving the conditions and, and the African people around him are going into um, helping form what his conclusions are. Now, I want to talk a little bit um, about these observations and observation more generally and the gaze more generally, because this comes up um, in at least two really interesting ways um, that I'd love to hear more about. So the first one um, is sort of the way Bert describes in his letters his experiences of African peoples that he's coming um, into contact with. I mean, one of, in the next chapter, um, or in, in a couple of chapters, one of the things that you, that you um, bring out are um, the, the poem that he writes, right? He writes his poem in the course of his travels depicting Africa as this sensual woman, okay? Um, so can you talk about the, the challenges for you as an author writing about Bert in this context in dealing with his very, the language that he's using in describing um, African peoples he's coming in contact with. And the, how, can you talk about that process for you? What is it like and what was it like for you engaging this issue of sort of the language of observation of Africans by Bert? Well, we, we, uh we spoke just a bit before we began our, our interview proper about Bert as an author of bad poetry. <laughs> Bert was certainly an author of bad poetry. So, what I, I, I wish I could remember the line exactly. Has she ever <laughs> stooped and kissed you with her sweet and clinging lips? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, so, so that particular poem, other than it was cheesy, did present problems because... It's true that I have these letters from Cadbury, from Bert to Cadbury, and, and that's mostly the direction they're going. But it's also the case that I really didn't know that much about him. So in, in our era, an era of textual analysis, we might be a little too inclined to read too much into it, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a poem which has pretty obvious sexual overtones 
but without knowing anything more about Bert, it's hard to figure out what was going on there. I also don't think that um, portraying Africa as a place where one acquires exotic diseases, which was true in the 20th century, early 20th century, absolutely. Bert falls prey to malaria, for example, mm -hmm. is odd. Um, his, his portrayal of Africans could be problematic. And if there was one thing that I was keen to convey to general readers and as a subset of general readers, students, it was the use of language. Because if there's one thing that troubles me as someone who teaches modern African history and troubles many people who teach probably not just modern African history, but even Chinese history, would be the portrayal of the other in the media in the West broadly. Now, there's there's a nice, broad, stereotypical... Anyway, I'm, I'm doing exactly what I'm protesting about. Um, the, the language that is routinely used to describe Africans and African peoples, and I would argue to a certain extent this is still the case, but it was most definitely the case in the early 20th century, is weighted in a way that reinforces prejudice. So, for example, the common word to describe black and brown peoples in the empires of Britain and France and Portugal and Spain was to call these people natives, natives of the place uh, in which they were born, as if this somehow gave them a lesser status than those people imperializing them or colonizing them. And in the case of Bert, an unfortunate tendency, probably reflective of the age he lived in, to use even more obnoxious words to describe Africans. So, uh, darkies. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the word that most of us in the West are, are reluctant to say out loud but hopefully we can say it in context here. So darkies, natives, and, and the most obnoxious one for us, to our ears, niggers. And Bert used these words interchangeably without any sense that these were injurious or obnoxious or that they were racial slurs. There was to him a sort of obliviousness that, that to me, at least, reading it in the 21st century, suggested the extent to which he objectified the people he was looking at, that he couldn't quite get himself as hard as he tried, and he did try hard, to see them as equals. Nevison, in contrast, was able to do that. And Nevison, if anything, went the other a little too far the other way. He romanticized the Africans that he looked upon. So when he's when he's looking at the Chokwe in the middle of Angola, he's commenting on the beauty of their physicality and the ornamentation on the women and the scarification. You could charge him with objectification too, but in the opposite direction. So he is he's definitely humanizing Africans, but he's still distant from them, but he, he is seeing them as fully human. So this kind of dialogue in the early 20th century puts 
Burt on the side of the majority of Westerners in their attitudes towards Africans, and Nevison in the minority. So Nevison's view for 21st century readers is the more palatable and accessible. Burt is much more typical of the early 20th century. Now, another um, another set of observations of uh, the the people that he's coming in contact, or the people that these people are coming in contact with, in on the islands in Angola, um, it takes the form not of verbal descriptions but of photographic. Descriptions. Yes, and so um, it's you you include a lot of photographs um, in the book and have a discussion in the back. Um, ex- talking a little bit about the thoughtfulness involved in right. that choice and the, the choice of how, not just what you included, but what you didn't include and how you arranged them. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the photographs, I, it was my great good fortune. There's a Portuguese businessman uh, in Lisbon named Jean Loreiro who has published a whole series of postcard books. This is his hobby. He collects colonial postcards, and he collects modern postcards, too. So I had the good fortune to meet him in Lisbon, and he gave me permission to use his photograph collection, provided, of course, I acknowledge that I was using it. And the photographs, these postcards, are interesting because they are, for the most part, staged. So you have Africans standing in front of cocoa-drying tables. You have a San Tomean woman and probably her daughter looking very plump and happy and well-dressed in one photograph. And, and there the distinction is these are black Africans who form the elite of the island as opposed to contract workers brought in or service brought in from elsewhere. Um, so there is a certain staginess to the presentation of empire, and these are Portuguese photographs. So these are Portuguese photographs taken by usually Portuguese photographers, and the image of empire they're meant to present is order and contentment. So we have pictures of Africans being treated in hospital. So that, that's meant to purvey the notion that these people are being well cared for, And look, they are happy, and it's a lush and beautiful place. I chose these photographs to support this notion that the the view of Portuguese Africa that Bert was seeing was also packaged. It, It seemed to me an accurate way for readers to see visually what he saw. He would have seen these things. But in, in defense of the Portuguese, it's worth noting that the frontispiece, so the, the photograph that's at the very beginning of the book, when you open it up, is a picture of Joseph Burt and William Cadbury when they take a trip to Angola in 1909, and they're standing in front of uh, some sort of colonial office, and standing at the bottom of the stairs is a bare-chested African man wearing a cloth around his waist. This is a staged photograph, very definitely. It's a staged photograph that uh, had a clear view of Bert's face, which is why I chose it. But there's a companion photograph, and the companion photograph is got uh, Cadbury and Bert standing in the same place, and at the foot of the stairs, the same African man, but wearing trousers. And so the distinction, the, the image that we as 21st century readers take away when we look at those two images of the African man 
are are it's clear that the the image that Cadbury is conveying by having the African man wear a cloth in one picture and trousers in the other picture gives a very different impression of what we should be thinking about when we look at Africa. So Cadbury did the same thing. So the staginess was symptomatic of European peoples in Africa who are attempting to portray, for whatever reason, for business reasons or political reasons, to their readers and their viewers notions of stability. And I think the subtext is always Westerners are bringing stability to Africa in the early 20th century, and that's a good thing, whether we think it is or was or not. I think that's part of what's going on in all these images. So my goal in choosing these specific images was to give readers of this narrative a sense of what Bert was seeing so they could actually see what he was seeing. So the photographs, and sort of take us through for the course of the next chapters, the stages of Bert's travels. Right. Um, so there's a wonderful um, account in a chapter that looks at his travels to Principe and his encounters with sleeping sickness and talks about the importance of sleeping sickness to the story. We then find him um, in the course of his travels on the coast in Luanda, which is currently the capital and the largest city in Angola, um, where he's... Um, going, making various trips on the coast, going into the hinterland, writing this poem, um, and sort of you know, memorable the, poem. <laughs> exactly, memorable cheesy poem. Exactly, um, and you know we uh, you, we see various um, elements here too. He decides that he needs to, in order to fully appreciate the story, recreate the seven hundred mile journey of the slave route himself. So he goes from Benguela to Kavungu on the eastern border of Angola, um, comes across a shop skeletons, decomposing bodies, and they're really, really powerful images here. Okay, so at the, uh, ultimately the end of his travels, he decides to go to Mozambique. Okay, mm-hmm. so how does, so before we come to um, the question, which will, you know, we won't take up too much more of your time, so, but when we see what happens um, as a result of his uh, report, what happens after that, before we get there, um, let's talk a little bit about Mozambique. Okay, Mozambique for my friend, the Asian historian. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, let me let me say one word or, or try. You know, almost impossible for the average academic. Let me briefly say something <laughs> about uh, Angola. the The duplication of the slave trip was actually, or, or of the slave route, was actually controversial, and it was connected, I think, to this difficulty in contacting Cadbury. So in between Bert leaving San Tomé to go to Angola and Nevison leaving Angola, since, as you noted, they take the journeys in reverse. So Bert goes to San Tomé and then to Angola. Nevison goes to Angola and then San Tomé and then goes home. Nevison writes, publishes his articles in Harper's Magazine, which basically demonstrate to any intelligent reader there's a slave trade going on here, and those slaves are being sent in part to Saint Tome to work on the Cocoa Estates. Cadbury wrote a letter to Bert and said, "Hey, you know, Nevison's book um, demonstrates this. Come home." But Bert didn't get the letter, and so he took the slave route journey himself. Ultimately, he comes to the same conclusion. The Mozambique part of the the journey 
is, to a certain extent, a kind of sidebar. In the debate between uh, Portugal and Britain over the nature of labor, the Portuguese said, you British are spending all your time yelling at us over 20,000 really well-treated laborers in Santome who are better treated, treated than most Portuguese peasants. Why don't you look at your own policies in Southern Africa? Why don't you look at the way Mozambican miners, Mozambique was also a Portuguese colony, but on the east coast of Africa, why don't you British look at what's happening to our Portuguese subjects from Mozambique when they go to the gold mines in the Transvaal? Why aren't you worrying about their death rates in these horrible conditions on the labor mines, uh, sorry, on the gold mines? What, what is the matter? You are being hypocrites. So the reason Bert goes to Mozambique is to try and determine if that accusation is true. Is it the case that Mozambican miners in the Transvaal's gold mines, and at this point the Transvaal is a colony of Britain courtesy of that South African war, so it's a British colony, he goes there to determine if the accusation of slavery is accurate there. Are, are those mostly British mine odors are gold mine owners in the Transvaal enslaving Mozambicans from Portuguese Mozambique or Portuguese East Africa on their gold mines. Now, here we get into the kind of foreign policy issues of the day. Because part of what's going on is those gold mines would not operate at all without migrant labor from Mozambique. There simply aren't enough workers to staff farms, to staff mines, to work in the cities. There aren't enough people there. The Mozambican miners are absolutely key to keeping those gold mines operating in the British colony of the Transvaal. So now do we find ourselves really engaging in hypocrisy. The Portuguese would say, absolutely, you are engaging in hypocrisy because Bert's conclusion is the Mozambican miners came from Mozambique on short-term contracts, usually six months to nine months, sometimes a year, and they returned home afterwards. They came freely, they left freely, they had mobility, therefore they were not slaves. Um, but he spent a grand total of two weeks in that part of the world. So it's like a holiday after spending six months in Santo Domingo and Principe, a year in Angola where you get malaria and it takes forever to get anything done. You're kind of like on a little vacation. You go to Johannesburg, you go to Lorenzo Marcus. These are very nice cities. You stay in a hotel. You know, it's, it's a pretty good deal. So basically the Portuguese said, you're lying. Now, the particular uh, item that you were interested in was the Chinese labor, right. the imp asked, importation, <laughs> importation of Chinese <laughs> labor. I asked Catherine to talk about this. Yes, Chinese <laughs> labor. Okay. So basically, the problem for mine owners in the British colony of the Transvaal was the dearth of labor. They were desperate for labor. There was too much going on, the commercialization of agriculture, the commercialization of sugar, um, farming throughout, the demand for labor was enormous. So in the face of the need for labor, they cast about everywhere for labor. And in the early 1900s, they began importing indentured laborers on contract from China. 
the presentation of Chinese labor is in its way rather similar to the presentation of um, laborers in San Tomé and Principe. So there's a whole series of postcards. And if you go to the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, they have a whole selection of these postcards of Chinese laborers. And they are portrayed very much in the same way, kind of stock post pictures, lots of pictures of fat Chinese. And the point of showing fat Chinese miners was to demonstrate that they were not being exploited. Right? They were fat, they were healthy, they were there by choice. In Britain, however, there was a huge controversy over whether these Chinese laborers were being exclo- exploited and being paid low wages. Uh, ultimately, it's decided that this, in fact, is not exploitation. They are there by free choice, and they have mobility. They have the freedom to leave. So the in, this is another case. So at the end of the trip, this is another case where Bert's naivete comes to the surface because it seems to him that the choice ought to be Mozambican miners who can go home over Chinese laborers who are foreigners to this place and who are potentially exploited. But in making that assertion, again, in part because he's missing the broader context from home, he's taking a position opposite to Cadbury, something he could have known if he had read the newspapers in Johannesburg more closely or read the newspapers in Lorenzo Marcus. So there's kind of a bookend here. There's a kind of curious bookend. So he goes to Saint-Omé. He's naive and idealistic. He goes to Mozambique and he misses the subtext of the tension between Chinese and Mozambican labor. He misses the subtext of the, the newly ended South African war and the conflict between Afrikaners and uh, British in the Transvaal colony. This is a whole entirely different set of issues, which uh, I can see I'm not going to get to. Um, so so to me, there's a kind of book-endedness uh, in terms of his naivete when he starts out in Saint-Omé and his naivete when he ends in Mozambique. However, ultimately, um, to... Um, make a, a concluding mark, remark on this subject. When you look at the report that he wrote for Cadbury that ultimately went to the British Foreign Office um, and went and was included as part of Cadbury's book, which he published in 1910 about the, the whole cocoa controversy, ultimately Bert is radicalized by the experience, and ultimately he comes down on the side of Nevison. Now he accuses Nevison of excessive journalism and misrepresentation and excess of all sorts, and ultimately he concludes that Nevison was right, and that if it wasn't exactly slavery, it was so darn close to slavery that it's hard not to call it slavery. So essentially, laborers were being forcibly contracted in Angola, and sent to Saint-Omé pretty much against their will and pretty much forced to labor on cocoa estates. And it kind of didn't matter how good the conditions of labor were there because they hadn't chosen those conditions of labor. Mm -hmm. So it is, it's this kind of very long journey 
to come to a conclusion that he could have come to about a year before if he'd gotten that letter from Cadbury saying, come home. Now, in, as we come, the, the very final thing that I'm going to ask you before we um, before we wrap up, and it's okay, we have tons of time. Um, uh, he gets home, he submits a report, and the report gets revised. Okay, so you, you mentioned the first version of his report um, has a lot of the mentions of death and the really strong language and the skeletons right. and the decomposing bodies that get kind of edited out of the public mm-hmm. version of this report. Can you just say a little bit to kind of bring us to a conclusion here? What, what's the reaction to his report and what are the consequences? I think that there is, I think for me, the take, one of the takeaways was this. I think that there are there are there are sets of competing concerns about the presentation of information. So, businessmen have one set of concerns. Government officials and diplomats have sometimes conflicting sets of concerns. A consuming public has often two fleeting concerns. And William Cadbury says this: you know that the British public is always going to be more interested in how their foodstuffs are produced than how gold is produced, for example. So they're more concerned about the more they're the more immediate impact on their lives. So the takeaway for me was there was a lot of competition and conflict about how to manage this information and who would benefit and who would be hurt by its management and dissemination. So the British Foreign Office asked Cadbury to give Bert's report to them first, and then they held on to it. Bert edited it, apparently at the request both of Cadbury and Cadbury's lawyers, who thought it quite badly written, and the British Foreign Office, and they took out the incendiary stuff. So they took out the stronger assertions of slavery, they took out the descriptions of decomposing bodies and that's that's a reference to the long trek you have to take through a very arid area and people died of thirst and they died of thirst in the course of a day and their decomposing bodies were left there and there were all these wooden shackles left on the edge of the river that you had to cross to get to the coast so the incendiary stuff is removed the Portuguese get a copy so that they can read it um Bert and Cadbury go to Lisbon and they meet with the planters. The planters are very concerned, the Portuguese cocoa planters are very concerned to create a report that acknowledges the worst offenses but also notes all the good that has been done by the Portuguese planters. So there is this kind of subtext, this this subterranean hidden negotiation between all these parties to try and reach a solution that will protect everybody's interests. And I think for me, this was the most fascinating part of it, that when you really read into all the competing agendas and all the competing desires, you could come away, hopefully not too naively, though I would say, you could come away with this sense that in the end... Everybody is operating in their own best interests, and on some level, at least, too minimal sometimes, workers' interests do get protected, but they don't get 
protect it necessarily as an intrinsic good. It is a good thing to treat labor as well. But rather, it is a good thing to treat labor as well because it serves the interests of these other bodies, businessmen, government officials, foreign diplomats. And that's why we should treat workers well, because it serves our interests to treat workers well, rather than it's some good that we should all aspire to. And that was, for me, revealing to understand the complexity of all these competing agendas and why decisions were taken the way they were taken. Well, Catherine, thank you so much. Um, the, the, we, we won't have time to talk about everything um, else in the book. I'll just mention for listeners um, that the final chapters take us through the return trip that Bert makes with Cadbury for six weeks, um, the return of Cadbury to England, the eventual boycott of San Tomé Coco, uh, um, a uh, suit that Cadbury brings against the standard for alleged, um, can, uh, essentially libel. Libel, yes. Um, and then an epilogue that t- takes us through what happens to Bird as he composes his book of sonnets and what happens to Cadbury um, and what happens in the context of decolonization, right. ultimately. Now, it's an extraordinarily rich book, and we didn't have time to nearly get through everything um, in here. But is there anything in particular um, that you want to mention that we might not have had a chance to talk about, but that you think might be important for listeners to know about the book, especially listeners who may not have yet had a chance to read it? Uh, First, let me say how much I've enjoyed this and how much I appreciate the opportunity to have spoken with you about this book. I think uh, if there's one thing that we didn't get to touch on, because let's face it, you know, push an academic's button, get a 15-minute lecture, (laughs) it would be uh, my attempts, mostly uh, in the chapters about Santomé and Principe and Angola, to give readers a sense of what it was like to be an African worker and what it was like to be an African woman on these cocoa estates and in the case of Angola plantations and what it was like to be an African man, to be a child. To the to the best of my ability with regrettably quite limited resources, that's a part that of the book that I'd like to draw readers' attention to, this this attempt to give a sense of what it was like to be there. Now, it is always, of course, negotiated through Bert's eyes, but it draws on a a rich set of resources and secondary material by other scholars to try and give people a sense of what it was like to be there at that moment. So, in addition to the broad takeaway about the complexity of competing interests when it came to cocoa in the early 20th century, it would be that, this notion of What did it actually mean on the ground to the extent possible uh, to have labor that was dignified? So now that the book is out, um, and congratulations on that, I should mention for listeners who may not know, we're sitting here at the National Humanities Center, um, where we're uh, where you're engaged in a new project, right? And, and we should say thank you, National Humanities yes, Center. Yes, we should thank say you. thank you, National Humanities <laughs> Center, very definitely. So what's can you talk about what's next for you? Um, what's this new project that you're working on? The new project is about... South Africa. Um, I did the research at the same time that I was doing the research for the Chocolate Islands book, something I would never recommend to anybody, actually. Two major book projects at the same time. The new book is on a completely different topic. It's about South Africa. It's about 20th century South Africa, and it is about 
the activism of Catholic sisters who opposed apartheid and the kind of transformative act in their process of opposition to apartheid was their decision in January 1976 to desegregate their schools, to open their schools to children of all races. So it's a book with that as the pivotal event, and it looks at, at their process of coming to that decision in, in the context of the broader issues of changes within the Catholic Church and the implications of that issue. So it is back to South Africa in the 20th century, but I would have to say it's definitely informed by all my reading about Portuguese West Africa because that that was a great gift to me to understand the broader context of Southern Africa and the broader issues of African history. Well, best of luck with well, that. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. This was such a pleasure, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. The pleasure was entirely mine. You've been listening to New Books in History. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.